Today on The Black Goat, we talk about the notable experiences that shaped 2019 for us, and a letter about whether scientists should be advocates for their work. Hi, everybody, and welcome to The Black Goat. My name is Sanjay Srivastava. I'm here with Alexa Tullet and Samin Vizier. Uh, this episode is going to be coming out on Christmas, although we're, or right around Christmas, although we're recording it uh, a couple weeks earlier than that. Um, but, uh, Samin, at the moment when this episode drops, if it does drop on Christmas, what parallel space time dimension are you going to be in? I'm going to be crossing the international dateline straight from December 24th to December 26th, and I couldn't be more excited about it. <laughs> 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 that is kind of amazing. And it, it, it honestly, like I knew about the whole dateline thing. And it never occurred to me that like you could actually skip Christmas. I know. It. Like, um, why are you excited about oh, it? Oh, I don't like Christmas. I don't like holidays. I like if I could just skip over holidays, I would be very happy. Why don't you like holidays? Because they're always a letdown. Mm. I think. Like, no matter how much you lower your expectations. I think the only, like, good holiday I've had is when I've, like, gone out to, like, a remote island with no internet access and just binge-watched DVDs back then um, with no contact with the outside world. Your comment about expectations reminded me, this is very unrelated to our conversation, but I just want to put in a plug for my grad student, Cassie, who went semi-viral on our the old row sorority Instagram this past week because she gives a talk in her intro psych class about falling in love. And her first slide is like, uh, it's something like how to fall in love or the something like the way to make the most out of love or whatever. Um, and the first line is lower your expectations. <laughs> and so somebody like posted that picture and was like, this is like not a cheerful message on my Thursday morning. Um, and like, yeah. I think the uh, same goes for holidays that like just yeah but you have to lower them way lower than you think you have to lower them which might also be I feel like I feel like some for me some holidays have more of that than others like New Year's is definitely uh, has always been a lower your expectations holiday for me because I, I feel like the right. the like the media images of like the amazing New Year's <laughs> are like really hard to re- create in real life but I don't know maybe I just I have baseline low enough expectations of like you know Christmas is just about being with family and and you know I don't really expect it to be like all that you know mind-blowing or whatever yeah. um, that's sort of interesting know. because I was gonna say like where do your unrealistic expectations come from like why don't you just expect each Christmas to be the same as the last Christmas <laughs> um, and then why do you feel disappointed or do your Christmases get like progressively worse each year I just like um, well Christmas for me often is like getting Chinese takeout with my mom and going to the beach or something which is actually pretty nice but yeah. it's just like you know everyone else is having like well, not everyone but a lot of other people having a special day and you're just having like a regular day and it's fine I'm just waiting for it to pass because it's just like annoying to have that in the background okay yeah so I, I would rather it didn't exist but I guess now I've gotten pretty good at lowering my expectations but I'm still very excited to just get to skip it uh-huh yeah, that is pretty funny that you're yeah flying over on I wonder it'll be interesting to see what the other people on the airplane like how they're taking yeah. it maybe they'll all it's, it'll be all of like your people yeah. like you'll finally yeah, right. you know all the like <laughs> all the the holiday non-loving introverts mm-hmm. will be like on the plane like yes we get to miss yeah. it yeah um 
Yeah, we don't have, I mentioned New Year's, we don't have like huge plans for New Year's, but a couple of days after, um, so so this, uh, I, so speaking of New Year's, the, the one New Year's that lived up to the hype for me was the 2000 New Year's because it was the, it was the whole Y2K thing, right? And so like, ever, you know, so on the one hand, it was like a huge round number, and on the other hand, everyone's expecting the world to end. So I ended up going to Las Vegas with some friends, and and that was where I met my now wife. Uh, um, uh, was at she was a friend of my roommate and and all that. And so, um, but anyway, so we're our the twentieth anniversary of our first date is this January, and so we're gonna go back to the Bay Area. And she's being a little cagey about it, but she's planned our evening, and I think we're gonna go back to the place where we uh, um, where we had our first date. Uh, so that's like. That, that's my, I, I feel like later in this episode, I'm going to be a major downer. So that's like my happy, sappy uh, moment of the episode. Yeah, that's cute. Yeah. That's <laughs> awesome. I like that. Have you been back there since your first date? To the place we had the first date? Yeah. Um, I don't think so. Um, that's really cool. Yeah. So I you're going to have this back. like really isolated association with that place in your first date. Yeah. That's awesome. Huh. Yeah. 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 Really cool. Yeah. What about you, Alexa? Do you have any plans over winter break, holiday, or otherwise? I think my plans are are pretty like boring to describe, although I really do look forward to Christmas holidays, actually. So for Christmas, I'll go to um, visit my family in Toronto, but it ends up being sort of just outside of Toronto. And we have like a pretty traditional Christmas, I would say, where we like have family over for dinner, and we eat like Christmassy kinds of food, and then um, we exchange gifts and we have a Christmas tree um, and it's pretty much the same every year and I always like it Um, so yeah that'll be fun and like completely unremarkable for like an audience I guess Um, and then on New Year's I will be flying home from Toronto to Tuscaloosa so probably that will be pretty boring I may manage to like make some kind of plan for that evening, but um, I will have very low expectations for my New Year's Eve. And since you're flying north south, you don't get to miss midnight or anything mm-hmm. like that. Nothing. Uh, no. The way does. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Nothing exciting. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I feel like uh, um, I don't know. Maybe I'm just getting old. Like I. The the idea of having that like stay out all night and like really like fun glamorous night and whatever just like is just in general less like actually appealing to me anymore um that compared to like when i was in my 20s i feel like it would appeal to me if i thought that i could stay out all night but i just can't like (laughs) i am just too lame to stay awake for that long um but uh, hypothetically i like it if you could have like a rager that started at like 8 30 i would love that (laughs) yeah well, we did, so uh, a few years ago, some friends of ours had a, a New Year's Eve party um, for like families with kids, and so they did the countdown at midnight Eastern time because we're on the West Coast, and so it was nine o'clock, and so all the kids got to like stay up, and then they they did like you know dropped confetti and did all this other stuff, and and I, <laughs> yeah, I was kind of like, this is great for me too. Like, let's go home now. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah I have. Um, I have uh, several friends who have kids and I'm like secretly into the fact that they want to like 
have dinner at 5 p.m. and then be like done at eight. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, our our son is lobbying to stay up t- till midnight for the first time. I'm not sure if that's going to happen. Oh. But, uh, yeah. yeah. He's 10. It's like, uh, That's so cool maybe, that when, like, stay until midnight is, like, a fun thing. I miss that. Yeah. <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> it's like we get, to, we get to relive it through him. Yeah, that's one of the weirdest things about kids. It's like how much they hate sleeping. <laughs> it, 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 there are many weird things about kids. Yeah, the, the sleeping is uh, is a part of it. Um, it's funny they they hate sleeping, but uh, they need it more than anybody else does. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and and you see the effects of it when they don't have it. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, cool. Well, should we uh, should we do our letter yeah. now? Um, yeah. Sure. Dear Goderie, I think a lot about the tension between science and advocacy. My feeling has always been that scientists need to stay away from advocacy related to their science. It is already hard enough to be objective as a scientist, and advocating for the results of your own research makes it even harder since you can no longer keep an open mind that you might be wrong. But I've had a lot of pushback when I say this, largely along the lines of, what are we even doing this for if we don't advocate for it to be used? I don't find that all that compelling, but others seem to. I've also been told and can see the logic that no science is value-free, since you decide what to study and that reflects your values. I study HIV because I think it's an important problem and we should do something about it. I still think we have to try to avoid getting involved in policy statements, though this is often tough to do. I'd love to hear your thoughts, Anonymous. Um, So yeah, I thought this letter was interesting, partly because, um, yeah, I think that I would have guessed that it would be um, the status quo for people to argue that you shouldn't advocate for your own findings. Um, but this seems to be the opposite of the letter writer's experience. So they say that they come up against a lot of people who, um, who say that we should be advocating for our own results. And I guess um, I do think that it seems to be a more of a norm now. Um, maybe I'm not exactly sure what they mean when they say advocating for your results, but I do see like people posting their papers on social media and um, and I guess like talking to the media is one form of advocating for your results or writing press releases and things like that or you know um, even like giving TED talks and writing books and things like that um, so I mean I guess I see anecdotal anecdotally um, that a lot of people seem to be engaging in this what do you guys think it's interesting that uh, in the letter they sort of say it three different ways and they there's Slightly different flavors. Right. So they say advocating for the results of your research, advocate for it to be used, and then getting involved in policy. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. to me, those are like obviously related, but but somewhat different things, right? Like, I think the first one, advocating for the results of your own research, like the results on their own, like anybody can do that. It doesn't have to have anything to do with like policy relevance or anything like that. People can get completely stuck on obscure results. Um, I, I think what they're going for is more the second and third meaning, though, the sort of advocating for applications. I mean, it is, it's really interesting to me. They, they, they're sort of saying, like, yeah, I can see the whole sign, nothing's value-free, blah, blah, blah. And then it's like, I study HIV because I think it's an important problem. We should do something about it. And, I mean, I, I think I said this on our last episode that, like, we tend to view things as political not when, because of whether they're political or not, but because of whether there's disagreement about them. So, you know, mm-hmm. saying, like, I think we should try to help human health is 
it's a value statement. It's just we don't we don't argue about it all that much. Um, it's not super controversial. Now, I don't know how old the letter writer is, but studying HIV was incredibly politically controversial when I was younger. Um, in the, the 80s and 90s, the, the US government refused to fund for a long time research into HIV and intervention into HIV. And so, you know, it is interesting that that's, I guess, become a non-controversial problem. I think if you're in your 40s and above and maybe even your 30s, you, you probably remember a time when that wasn't the case. Um, so, so yeah, I mean, it is interesting that like um, saying like, I'm, you know, I, I don't think people should have cancer. And so I'm going to do research that helps prevent or cure cancer is like, that's a incredibly value laden statement. It's just not one that I think is super like, there's not like pro a pro cancer lobby out there who's going to argue with you about it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think. Um with the last couple of examples of kinds of advocating for your results, um, there's there's one idea or one version of that that I don't like, which I think the letter writer sort of implies in the last sentence, um, which is uh, overgeneralizing our results to make sure that it seems like they have policy implications or to um, to sort of exaggerate the kinds of implications that we can draw from our findings. Um, that I would, I would strongly argue against. But then there's a, there's a s sort of like a different practice of, let's say you have a paper that you think people might care about and you wanna get that paper out there. Um, that seems less controversial to me. And obviously there's, there could be a lot of overlap between the two, right? So. If you, if you think that your lab study has implications for people in the real world, and as part of communicating that study to people, you make that implication, then I think you're sort of doing a combination of both. Um, so I don't know. To me, the answer to this, for me, depends a lot on um, how much you're overclaiming based on your findings. I think... For me, I resonate a lot with the letter writer. I do perceive that there's a lot of encouragement to um, advocate for the topic that you study and or your results. And I don't really like it. It makes me kind of uncomfortable. I don't know exactly how to draw the line. I don't have a good answer, so my discomfort is not very well justified. But like being on the board of APS or seeing what happens in other societies, it seems just like an absolute given that influencing policy is a good thing we want everyone to know the policy relevance of psychological science mm -hmm. and i think that this is related to like creating incentives to exaggerate but even independent of that right. i'm not sure like why it's so obvious or why it's taken as such a given and also why it needs to be that way like some basic science isn't policy relevant right away and that's okay um so i feel like there is a premium put on um influencing policy that I don't really, I think isn't really healthy and maybe is premature in many cases, not all of them. I don't know where you draw the line. I mean, I think my fantasy world would be different roles for different people. So like the people doing the science are not the ones evaluating whether or not it should be implemented in policy, that there's like another group of people, like maybe journalists or some other group that's like very well versed in evaluating the science and then also like relatively independent in judging whether it has implications for policy and what those implications should be and so on. But I think that's very naive.
I this is interesting. I I see it very differently than than you guys. I guess one and maybe, maybe some of this is how we're parsing it, right? So I didn't. I, so so I think uh, probably a point of agreement that in the abstract a lot of people would agree on, although in practice it's harder, right? Is is that you don't you don't want to exaggerate or misrepresent science um, in service of advocacy. I think that's that's fairly straightforward. I think that um, in practice, you know, there are lots of examples of that happening. I didn't take the letter writer to be concerned about that. I, I took it to be more, I mean, not that they're not concerned about that, but I took the question to be more about on a fundamental level, like, should this be part of it? And I disagree, I mean, I, I, I mean, imagine like, climate change if climate scientists weren't supposed to be part of the conversation about policy. I mean, this is an issue where the, the questions are require technical expertise to, to answer and to advocate yeah. effectively. Um, well, and also, like I, I, like, I don't think there's anything... So, I mean, I wouldn't, I, I think that this letter writer says earlier on, they're, they're, you know, I've had a lot of pushback. People say, what are we even doing this for if we don't advocate for it to be used? I, I would agree with pushing back on that. I don't think everyone has to do advocacy. I don't think every piece of research has to have a immediate policy relevance or whatever. But at the same time, I do think scientists have to be involved yeah, in policy could... because policies are, a lot of policies are, involve fact questions sure. that science is in the best position to but answer. But they can be involved, but there could still be a middle person. Like, I don't, I think advocacy to me has a very specific meaning. I don't think the scientists should necessarily be doing the advocacy. I think they can testify, they can speak to journalists, they can speak to members of Congress, they can do those things. But I think the advocacy part, the lobbying, the organizing marches, the, like, gathering groups of people together to, like, sign petitions, I don't know. Like, I'm not sure. I don't, I obviously... I'm sure I've done those some of those things. So like my discomfort doesn't it's this vague sense of like in a perfect world I would like there to be a middle like a medium between the scientists and the policymakers who aren't as invested as the scientists are in their own research or as the policymakers are in re-election and things like that. So but we don't live in that world. So given that we don't live in that world, I do think often it's justified for scientists to engage in advocacy. I just wish they didn't have to. Yeah, I I guess I don't um I don't I just I don't see uh, you know, again, setting aside the sort of incentive issues which I think are really important, but I'm just not a, I'm addressing this separate from that. Like I I I think it's really important one, I think it's important for scientists to be involved in, in these things. And I, I'm not talking about, like, organizing marches. I'm talking about things where the science is relevant. But two, I don't know how to disentangle them because the choice of what we study and how we study it is value-free. Like, the choice to do research on cancer... Can, sorry, value <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> the choice to do research on, on cancer is... Like, I don't know... Like, why would you do that if you, like, somehow manage to have a, like neutral position oh, but, that, but that's cancer. different like, you know, than whatever. being engaged in advocacy you can have um, no but if you if you're so what about saying you know I, i'm going to study uh how smoking affects lung cancer that is uh, you know the the motivation to do that is a policy goal to to evaluate whether people should be smoking mm -hmm. and you know and and so, I mean, I think the, the line start, you know, the choice of what to study and how to study it, when you start setting interventions, you start studying, you know, 
applied questions, but also even a lot of basic questions are. But are that's different than doing. The, the reason we do them is to generate knowledge. I don't. I don't think there's a clean yeah. line. I guess those. I think it's better for the people doing advocacy and for the scientists if they keep some some line between them, which isn't to say they can't communicate, they can't collaborate, they can't c- exchange information, all of that. I just want it to be different groups of people with different priorities. So what are you counting as advocacy, Samin? Fundraising, lobbying, um, mobilizing people. Um, you know, like most things that are not science, but you're doing it with your scientist hat on. Now, I think, obviously, I think scientists can do that in their non-scientist roles. Yeah, right, right, right. And the letter writer specified that too, actually. Um, but so... But what, what about like speaking out on matters of public concern with your scientific knowledge on. is relevant? I mean, I think... Where, yeah, where, I mean, obviously, I talk so, to journalists. So. so saying like the, you know, ocean levels are going to rise. Yeah, I think that's fine. Like, that's, te- that doesn't you know, seem like advocacy okay. to me. That seems like something you would you would be willing to publish within a scientific context or willing to... I mean, I'm, I'm no, I recognize I'm being a huge hypocrite here. Again, I don't necessarily live up to this. I'm just talking about like my ideal of how I'd like it to be. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I guess I, uh, I do see that kind of stuff as advocacy because you can't, it, it, if you like were truly like just completely indifferent to some issue, you wouldn't be doing it, right? So the values, mm-hmm. you're doing it, the reason you're speaking, the reason you're, you're doing the research that you did that you're speaking about, it has a has values involved, then and it, you're doing yeah, it then because we just, you want to see some change. Then it's in the just world. a semantic disagreement. I don't care why you're doing the science. I, I care that you are careful about the line between science and advocacy. And again, I think often practically we end up having to go into advocacy because other people aren't. But I would rather other people did the advocacy part. But I don't. I don't mind at all that people are motivated by a desire to fix a problem or make the world a better place. I think that's fine. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I guess I guess for me the part of the issue is that we just we because from an analytic perspective it's the same thing things being value laden but we sort of we flag it as problematic when there's disagreement and I that's what bugs me is like no you know if someone says you know I don't want there to be cancer more cancer so, you know whatever then then everyone's fine with it but if you say like I don't want there to be but the second, you know, sex discrimination in the workplace. The second you start um, trying to scare people into, like, when you make emotional appeals, I don't care if it's for, for reducing cancer or for discrimination or other things. Like, that's getting into advocacy. Like, using tactics that a scientist wouldn't use with your scientist hat on. I think that's... I th- well, okay. That's, maybe, I mean, if you're defining advocacy as being unscientific, then, yeah, it is a semantic <laughs> difference. But... Again, I don't know how you can speak about value-laden issues without inducing some emotion in the people that are listening to you. And I'm not saying you make like unscientific or anti-scientific appeals. But a lot but, of advocacy like, does. Mo- like the March for Science, about. a lot of advocacy does, I think, really cross, come very close or crosses that line into like the ends justifying the means. And, and for some guess, advocacy issues, the ends should, you know, I, I don't think that's wrong for advocates all the time. There are cases where it's okay. That's why I think it's it's dangerous for a scientist to bleed into that role. Yeah, for me, I there's just, like yeah, the again, line between okay. communicating your results to the public and advocacy is the blurriest line. So like when, when scientists like write a discussion section or when they present a talk or I think it becomes even blurrier when it becomes like writing a um, 
like a press release or writing for the directly for the public that's where i think like that's things those are things that scientists are doing all the time absolutely with their scientist hats on they're like part of scientists jobs but that feels like the f- the fuel for advocacy like i don't i don't really see how that's separate from the advocacy i don't mind providing fodder for people doing advocacy as long as it's not something that a scientist shouldn't say or you know as long as that's exaggerating or but using like, tactics if the point that, is to like remove bias from from science i feel like we're not accomplishing that it's I don't, I don't think we're going to remove yeah. bias from science. Yeah, yeah, I guess. <laughs> but like, okay, so, so I mean, let's take the letter writer's example of studying HIV. So a scientist saying to a grant panel, um, I think I have an idea for a study of HIV. I think it's important to do this study because if we do this study, we can, you know, potentially help human health. That's advocacy. I think saying to policymakers back in the 80s, um, people are dying of this disease and NIH should be funding research into it. That was incredibly controversial and people fought and, and, and died for, for that to happen. That was advocacy, but it was also science. They were, they were advocating for scientific research. The, the values and priorities reflected in what we fund, how we choose to study things. I, I don't know, how, I don't, like, in you know the idea that there is some even an ideal of science that doesn't involve that i don't even know what the ideal looks like never mind like imagining what the reality would look like yeah i don't know i i don't think i can defend my position i i maybe there's an exception for advocating for science funding because i don't think anyone else is going to do it besides the scientists but i don't know yeah i don't think we're going to get any further than we have in our discussion <laughs> <laughs> yeah I feel like this is maybe this is kind of good. Like people, people have told us a couple times that we like agree too much on the podcast, and I, I feel like that's not what. Like I mean, we don't always agree when we talk, that's and true. that like I think we're all okay yeah. with that. But uh, anyway, this is kind of funny. So, so listeners, you you heard a, a <laughs> moment of us uh, not reaching agreement or something. This is going to be like the um, episode where we disagree with each other and just like talk about how shitty things are. Yeah, it's going to be like the yeah. the downer episode. Yeah. Well, that's that's coming up next. Yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> that's a nice uh, prelude. To, okay. Well, so so anonymous. Uh, well, anonymous ended with "I'd love to hear your thoughts," mm-hmm. and so anonymous did get their question <laughs> answered. <laughs> they, they heard our thoughts. Yes. <laughs> they didn't get an answer, but they heard our thoughts. Okay. Um, cool. Uh, well, yeah, listeners, if you want to email us, if you have a, a letter for us, you can reach us at letters at theblackcoatpodcast um, you can find us on Twitter at BlackCoatPod. We're on Facebook, facebook.com slash BlackCoatPod. We're on Instagram, instagram.com slash BlackCoatPod. Um, you can find us on the web, www.theblackcoatpodcast.com. And uh, yeah, thank you for listening. Um, so our main topic, we've this has now become like an annual tradition, right? Where we do kind of last episode of the year, we do the year in review. So mm-hmm. This is our year in review, and we were, we were discussing before the episode what we we're all going to talk about. Um, and uh, anyway, brace yourselves, <laughs> listeners. Um, <laughs> I, but Alexa, uh, I think we decided you were going to go first. So tell us about some, uh, what are some things that stand out for you about your 2019? So at first I thought I was going to mention three things, but I want to add one, because when you said a year in review, um, it made me think of 
the service that Spotify now provides to like summarize um, your music listening habits. And I, I just wanted to throw in there that according to Spotify, um, my artist of the decade, do you guys want to guess? No, because it would be super embarrassing is. for me. <laughs> Taylor Swift. Lizzo. I wish, but the decades, I mean, yeah. I haven't had that long to listen to Lizzo. Um, it's Rihanna, which I feel really proud of. Nice. <laughs> and is also really consistent with um, with my identity, I think. Uh, sometimes the Spotify feedback I'm, like, surprised by. I'm like, oh, my God, I can't believe I listened to that song that many times. Um, but But Rihanna feels good. Um, so, okay, so 2019 in review. Um, the first thing that I want to talk about is, is not that shitty. Actually, it's, it's kind of like a nice thing, um, which we've talked a little bit about before on the podcast, which is that I bought, um, my house in February of this year. Um, and I was trying to think of like sort of unexpected, um, things that I, that are consequences of me. Um, now owning a home and I think there have been things that like I didn't necessarily anticipate liking or anticipate like affecting me about owning a home um, that I notice now Um, one thing that I sort of like is so like when I first moved to Tuscaloosa I lived um, in an apartment by myself um, and I there were there was basically like nothing on the walls of this apartment it was like very tidy and there was no decoration and nothing personal really about it at all. Like I had like a generic couch and like uh, unremarkable bedding and like, um, and I was just like very unmotivated to, to like make it my own in any way. And, um, and then after that I lived with a roommate and I sort of, I always felt a little bit like I was like living in her house because I moved in after her. And so like, I didn't take any initiative with, with that home either. And this is the first time where I've been like, oh, I'm in control of what this place looks like and I might be here for a while, so I should like actually do something about it. And I like it way more than I expected. Um, And part of me feels good about that because I feel like it often manifests itself as like a greater like interest in art. Um, So I'm like much more likely to like consider paying what art is worth now, which like I used to like only buy art that would be like really inexpensive. Um, and like buying art from local artists and things like that. Um, and then I also feel somewhat bad about this because I don't know that like people strongly associate, when people think of like consumerism, I don't think the first category people think of is art. Um, but I still feel a little bit like I'm like giving into this like consumerist urge to buy things that are sort of extravagant and just like look nice. Um, and I'm not sure what, maybe there's, maybe there's some defense of like spending it on local art is like slightly better than, um, I don't know. What's like the shittiest version of consumerism. I feel like people really hate on like buying TVs. (laughs) Right. Or like fast fashion at the mall, like going to H and M or something and getting something you'll throw out in three months. Uh huh. Right. Um, so there's that. Um, and then I also like, um, being like a host. So like having people over to my house, I really like, um, which I think if I were to really follow through with that, I would get more chairs. Um, because right now I own 
two indoor chairs and one, so one desk chair and one piano bench. And so I can't, and if I really want to get crazy and have like six people for dinner, I'll like take my outdoor like patio furniture inside. Mm -hmm. Um, So like right now I have like max seating for six people. Um, And it's getting like a little ridiculous at that point. Um, But that's something that I really like is just like having people over um, and is maybe connected to something that I'll talk about um, when I talk about my New Year's resolution. Um, And then also another thing that like I didn't um, should have been obvious, I guess, was just the idea of like feeling more permanent in a place. And so I think more now about being part of, I guess, the, the community of Tuscaloosa and how like what I want that to look like in the future and how I maybe can like participate in that um, in a way that I sort of did before. And obviously I, I could still leave Tuscaloosa. It's not like, you know, people sell houses every day, I imagine. Um, but I, it's definitely like shifted my perspective in that regard to sort of thinking more about um, myself as like a more m- semi-permanent like fixture um, in Tuscaloosa. Yeah. It is interesting how that sense of putting down roots sort of, uh, it takes a while and you don't necessarily notice it happening, but it also, it's not like a smooth trajectory. Like sometimes something will happen and you're like, oh, that like, I just put down a major root there or something like that, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I was, uh, I was thinking the other day about how like when I first moved to Eugene, I used to read all the San Francisco newspapers online and like keep up with Bay Area news because I still have this connection. Now I'm like, I haven't looked at like I don't even know if is SF Gate still alive? Like I don't know, you know, and it and anyway, yeah. Um but I think that it's interesting that like both a physical place and connections to people and the combination of those two, like wanting to use your home to connect with people is kind of that's an interesting sort of intersection of those things. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right. I um yeah, I think like much more about ways to like be connected to people in Tuscaloosa now, I think, than I have in the past. And sometimes that's also a scary thought because, um, and this is related to my next thing, but when you feel like that community is more unstable, then then I'm like, shit, why did I buy a house here? <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, so my the second thing that is, I I think I would just be, being dishonest if I ignored this is something that um, was an, a notable experience um, in 2019 for me um, is is breakups. So I I guess maybe you could say that I've been through two and a half breakups <laughs> this year, <laughs> one of one of which is fairly recent. Um, and I've also had friends go through um, like a lot of my friends have gone through pretty major breakups this year. Um, and so I've thought a lot about them. And I think that in academia, we often don't talk that much about breakups. And I, th- I also feel like people don't always consider them as like a legitimate source of stress. So like, I don't know. Um, for instance, like when students come to me with like excuses about why they like missed an exam or whatever, um, I used to be like sort of, 
I, first of all, I think students rarely come to you and say, like, I'm going through a breakup. Can I take a makeup exam? <laughs> because I think they already know that they won't be taken seriously by most people. Um, but also I, I used to um, not take that as seriously as like a medical excuse or something. And I think I've sort of changed my um, my mind about that. So, yeah, I mean, we sort of act like um, there. this is like your personal problem and it's like to be considered like separately from your professional life. But in my experience, it's like very, very difficult to disentangle from my professional life. Um, like, yeah, I mean, I find it really hard to focus on my work when I'm like, when I've gone through breakups. Um, and it's not just like the breakup itself. It's also, you know, probably the time before the breakup is confusing too, if you're like leading up to that. And then there's like the time after it. Um, and, um, especially like in a relatively small community like the one I live in, um, these people are like, there's often like connections between my professional life and my personal life. And so um, so those lines are like not that clean. Um, so yeah, for in some ways I just wanted to talk about breakups a little bit just because I feel like they, they do have such an impact on our professional lives at some points, but we don't usually talk about them in that context. Um, I also feel like healthy discussions of breakups are supposed to involve like some discussion of growth. Like there's this like more general idea of like post-traumatic growth, right? Like these negative experiences should lead to some kind of growth in our lives. Um, and I want to just first talk about how like how shitty breakups are. <laughs> like, you know, like it's like it, I do think the idea of like growing from breakups is nice. And I think there's like utility in thinking of them in that way. Um, and also like, uh, I do think that there's a lot that you can learn from breakups. Um, but um, yeah, the experience of them really sucks. Sanjay, would you like to add something to yeah, that? Yeah, I mean, well, you know, it's just the, the, it's an interesting example. I mean, first of all, like, yeah, academia is so tough on people's relationships. And so, I mean, I, I think some of what you're saying about breakups is like generally true about them not always getting taken seriously. But I, I think you're right that in academia, we're just hard on people's relationships generally by making people move and making people work these long hours and making people get so deeply interested in one really obscure thing that they can't talk to normal humans uh -huh. and like all these, all these other things we do. But, you know, it's also interesting what you're saying about, you know, it, it makes me think about, like, we have all these scripts about, like, how things are supposed to go. Mm -hmm. and we have these scripts about breakups. And on, on the one hand, it, it sort of shows how they're double-edged, right? Because, like, having a, a sort of, like, a structured narrative form about what a breakup is like kind of tells you what to do. Mm -hmm. And it, it sort of, like, gives you this sense of hope that there will be growth or whatever. But... You know, if you if you follow it and if it if you're able to sort of conform, if either your experience matches it or you can conform to it, but then it I think for the people whose experiences aren't matching the shiny narrative, it just makes it that even more isolating. Where it's like, well, shit, like I'm supposed to be feeling this like <laughs> sense of enlightenment. Right. I just fucking feel like shit, and there's no like there's no el there's no other side to that, you know, and it's like. I feel even more isolated because, like, I'm not even having, like, I'm not even, like, with all the other breakup people feeling like our normal breakup thing, even if you really are. Yeah, right, exactly. Like, I think, I think that narrative is useful in a lot of ways, but I also think in some ways it's sort of harmful because it, it glosses over, um, 
yeah how hard breakups can be and also how sometimes they like have impacts on us that are like the opposite of growth you know like sometimes you experience a breakup or a new like and it makes you I don't know it affects like the way that you approach the next relationship in a way that's not ideal or something like that and it would be really nice if that weren't the case and that it was always like um you know we've learned something and grown from it and we're going into the next relationship this like improved you know more like um experienced informed version of ourselves but then there are also sometimes like baggage the term baggage exists for a reason right and it's a real thing um and then i mean there's also just the sort of like the day-to-day things that are tough about breakups so like they're they're so distracting like like i was saying like up until the point where you break up but then also after there's um there's so much uncertainty so like if you're the person who's breaking up with the person then like it's really hard to make that decision and i think it's easy really easy to second guess yourself afterwards and if you're broken up with not that those are always like very clear distinctions but if like if you sort of yeah if you're the one who was broken up with then you have these doubts about like whether you could have done something differently in the relationship and and so it's just like very preoccupying um it can affect your support network so like not only do you potentially lose one source of support but if that person is connected to other people that are connected to you um it can mess with that stuff um yeah and then you know you just like have all of these associations and there's like a lot of reminders so i mean i yeah i got it got this got a little bit more like me ranting about my negative experiences with breakups than I wanted. It. I wanted it to be like a little more like I'm talking about the issue of breakups. Um, but I I do want to say like to this point of um, of growth, I I am sort of like trying to find that in my own experience. And for me, so um, the like more sort of significant breakup that I went through was during the summer. And um, I think probably it's it's one of the times I've been the most sad um, and also the most like pessimistic about the future. Um, and that was like a scary experience for me because that's pretty out of character for me. Um, so it made me worried to think that like, Um, that's an experience that I'm capable of having because before that I sort of thought that I wasn't really like prone to that kind of experience. Um, And so like maybe the the narrative to tell about that is just like that that was shitty and it kind (laughs) of, it might might negatively affect me going forward. Or maybe, yeah, I don't know. What I've tried to see as like a potential source of growth is maybe that um, maybe it's helpful for empathizing so maybe I can um empathize with other people's negative experiences better now um and I I hear people say that like being really sad can make you more grateful for the times that you (laughs) are happy and so I mean this is yeah this is my and don't forget a larger sample size Mm. for therapy or just self-reflection about life experiences you know right sample sizes aren't always better it may be better if your uh-huh. end was one and you get to be the same person for your whole life. But I don't know. There's also things you can only learn through patterns or through noticing things. Yeah. 
Right. Right. I also I th- I think like I think there's value in looking for growth, but I also I think it sometimes it's fine to walk away from something and the totality of your like take home is that fucking sucked. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And now the next thing, you know, like like some it's yeah, like you were saying before, like I, I think that I think there's value in looking for it. There's value in trying to not just look for it, but trying to create some kind of growth if you can. But I I, I think it's yeah, I don't know. I I. I, in in my own life too, and and in talking to other people, like I think we need to give ourselves and each other permission to just yeah. like, just like acknowledge the shittiness of things sometimes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right. And I think that comes into with the, with the, empathy portion is that like. Sometimes it's easy, I think, to respond to other people's um, problems by trying to like find solutions or you know, like suggest like a positive spin on things. And I think I'm, I might be more likely now for better or for worse to respond to somebody's situation by saying like, that fucking sucks, (laughs) you know, (laughs) and that's it. (laughs) So does this, uh, you mentioned earlier that you have a new year's resolution. Does this tie into that? Or is that like a whole different direction? I think it's a whole, it's either a whole different direction or like sort of pathetic. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Which is my New Year's resolution is, yeah, I don't know. I, maybe I want to take that back. Um, my New Year's resolution is to invest more in my graduate students. <laughs> um, so I think, like, this semester um, I have been making an effort to do that, but maybe a little bit less systematically than I should. Um, so uh, I we celebrated like one of my grad students' birthdays, but I don't have like a consistent system for celebrating their birthdays. Um, They came over to my house, this is like related to the hosting thing, um, for Canadian Thanksgiving. Um, But so I've been spending more time, I think, socially with my grad students um, and one-on-one and also like having more celebrations. And I feel like it has had this like really positive impact on um, on my own experience, but also I think my, my grad students are, my grad students have benefited from that too. Um, so yeah, I don't, it's very unclear to me whether my grad students ever listen to this, so they, <laughs> they may not hear this resolution, so that I might not be that accountable. Um, but yeah, I want to be more systematic about making sure that we celebrate things and making sure that, um, that we like spend time together socially um, and yeah, are sort of like connected as a lab because I think, um, I also think that right now my grad students are like particularly close with each other. Um, and so I, I think that's one of my motivating factors. Um, so I'm gonna be a better advisor as my New Year's resolution as I go on sabbatical. <laughs> <laughs> As soon as I get back, I will be a better. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, uh, should I sort of build on your uh, shitty summer uh, and talk, do my year in review? Yes, you should tell us about your shitty summer in connection to my shitty Yeah, workers. I we're we're saving Samin for last. Samin, you better come up with some good <laughs> stuff because otherwise everyone's gonna be bummed out. Yeah, no, I uh, um, I mean I didn't have a bad year, but I had a shitty summer and. It really affected me in a lot of ways, and it, it, it was interesting that it wasn't one single thing. 
it was just a bunch of stuff was going on that piled up on me. So I had a, um, I think probably the most, and I, I'm, I'm not going to discuss details of this, but a close family member who had a very serious medical issue that was a major source of stress, um, you know, within the family dealing with that. Um, uh, you know, I also, like, the amount of travel I do really caught up with me and hit me. And I, I've realized, like, when I travel, it just knocks me back. And so it was the amount of trips I had, but also, like, they were just perfectly spaced so that I, like, didn't, I would think I could catch up and couldn't, and then the next thing would knock me further back. And so I was just constantly, like, so work was stressing me out. Um, I also, I was completely overwhelmed by service at work. Um, there were, so about a, you know, I, I just finished up six years as associate head of the department. And um, as part of being associate head, our IT staff were supposed to report to me, and we had our, our um, director of IT services left a year ago, and they didn't replace him, and I ended up just like taking on all this supervisory work. I was sort of the de facto IT supervisor, which was like not good for anybody. Like it was, you know, and and it was it was because you know the administrators didn't want they wanted to save the money, and I should have, and I I like a chump. I was like, if somebody doesn't you know, step in, um, we're going to be in trouble because we don't have any supervisors. And, and I, what I should have said is like, I'm not doing it. Uh, if the university doesn't pay for someone who's actually going to do this, it, I'll let it fall apart. But I, I was a chump and I said, I'll do it, what I can. And I, so I did a, invested a lot of time doing, I think, a mediocre job of, of trying to help our IT st support staff keep things running. Um, so and that sort of you know was culminating over the summer and, and other things and and you know and a bunch of other things were just going on in my life and it was so it was just one of these times when like there was a million things and you know I I've uh, um, I've had periods of depression you know since I was a teenager off and on as in sort of my like starting. I guess maybe in my late 30s or in my 40s, like anxiety came into the picture, which was not part of what I was like when I was younger. Like I used to be both appeared to be and mostly was a pretty chill person. Um, and now the appearance has remained, but like, uh, you know, all this other shit just so anyway. So my summer, I was so ready for my summer to be over. Um, and I, I felt like I was just letting people down left and right because I had too much stuff going on. Um, so uh, the upshot, and I, it's funny because I haven't, I haven't really talked with anyone about this, uh, um, but I went on antidepressants this fall, mm -hmm. um, and it was a very, uh, so if, any, you know, if anyone besides my wife is listening, they're all hearing it for the first time. Um, it was, you know, it was interesting because I had all these preconceptions, and it, it's so funny, they only applied to me, right? I'd never had yeah. any, like negative views of anyone I knew who's on antidepressants. Mm -hmm. I never thought like it was a sign of weakness. I never thought that they were papering over the problems. But as any time I would think about for myself, all these thoughts would come into yeah. my head. Um, and and so I think I held, I've been in therapy before, but I, I held off on antidepressants. I kind of like, I thought, oh, these are just like happy pills that are going to sort of make me oblivious to the real problems in my life and, and whatever else. Um, and it, it's not, it hasn't, I think because it hasn't 
completely like turned my life around is part and parcel of like it didn't do all these things I was kind of afraid it would do like it didn't make me into some again it's so ridiculous to think these things and I never thought them about it but you know you think about yourself as like oh it's going to turn me into some happy shiny automaton who's not gonna whatever and it just wasn't the case it was just like it just kind of like it was like the the highs and lows remain in my life it didn't flatten out my moods but it just like the troughs are a little less low now Mm -hmm. um and it's just kind of like steadied things just a little bit and uh you know and it's like and it feels like I needed that in order to just like figure out what the fuck I'm gonna do about the rest of my life like it doesn't solve any of my external problems although I'm no longer associate head with the antidepressants didn't do that but uh um you know I gave that Mm -hmm. up that's good um uh, my family member is, is doing better. I had nothing to do with that, but that's also good. So, like, things things have gotten a little bit more easy to deal with uh, since the sort of crisis point over the summer. Um, but it feels like it's just given me, the, like, the capacity to, like, actually think about what I'm doing with my life. How did you um, make the decision to go on antidepressants, and how did you get over the feeling that um, that you that that you didn't want to go on them? I think the decision was because I was desperate. Mm-hmm. Um, I And because when I've been in therapy before, it's been very focused on immediate issues, and it's been very helpful to that, but it's been like short courses of therapy um, that's been like I have like, you know, like I'm in a really bad state, and I, I the, the, the previous time I was in therapy, I was in a, in a really in really bad shape, um, but there was like, it sort of helped me address the immediate external things that were like piling onto me, but I felt this time like there are longer term issues I need to think about just in terms of of how I deal with things, you know, what I want my life to be like and and that I wasn't totally sure that my experience I mean, I, I should try therapy again, but the the sort of the kinds of things therapy helped with previously did felt a little different. But then also like, yeah, I just I was desperate and I I wanted to try something, I needed to try something. And so I, I sort of had some trepidation, but I was like, I'm going to give this a try. Um, and, you know, and then it was kind of like, and also just sort of like, I, I had enough capacity to like challenge my own weird thoughts about antidepressants and be like, Sanjay, really? Like, you think it's going to be like the kids in the Hall Brain Candy movie? Like, it's not just fucking get over yourself and, and give it a try. Um, and, and people close to me have been on antidepressants. And, and so, um, you know, knowing about their experiences helped too. Mm-hmm. So anyway, and it, it was, it's been part and parcel of like making some other life changes, like just, you know, I've paying more attention to my health and, and uh, um, I'm trying to cut back on work related travel to sort of, because I've realized like I used to love travel and it's just, it's changed for me. Um, mm-hmm. Uh, and, and uh, you know, I'm finally trying to make my life catch up to, to that. Yeah. So let's talk about something positive. Wait, Samin. that's all? <laughs> I thought you had other things. You I, yeah, I, we're, we're, okay. we're, we should, we should right. move on. Yeah. Well, my shitty summer was a winter, so I think I win. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so, so yeah. I mean, it's interesting as we were talking, like thinking about the years in review we did the last two years. I think this is our third 
I'm not sure. Mm-hmm. But I think our first one was 2017, which was a year where I think I talked about a breakup in our year in review. Because mm-hmm. I was in a relationship the first half of the year and then not the second half. And so I was reflecting on like the differences between being in a relationship versus not. Mm-hmm. Um, and then last year I was mostly single and I did some online dating and stuff like that. So it's interesting to think about how different each of my three years in review have been. So this mm-hmm. year, the big thing for me was getting in a new relationship that got serious very fast. So I flew to Australia about a year ago, met Alex, uh, got an email about applying for a job in Melbourne like two weeks after I met Alex and applied for the job, interviewed for the job this past year, um, decided to accept it and I'm getting ready to move. So yeah, it's like so many big changes, but all great, all like positive, a little bit terrifying. Um, I really, really love California. I love living in Davis. I love being close to my mom. I love my friends around here. I love being in North America so that I can be closer to even my friends who are far away. Um, So it's all big and new and scary, but a lot of good stuff. Um, I feel like this year for me has been letting go slash getting rid of a lot of things, like not just physically, but also like I finished my four-year term as an editor and a bunch of other like obligations have ended. I finished a three-year term on the board of APS. I finished, you know, a bunch of other things that required time and travel and energy and things like that. And that also brought meaning and kept me busy and, and I think happy in many ways. So especially like facing this giant move to a place where I won't have a ton of social support, where I'll be many, many time zones away from the people I usually call on for social support. And at the same time as like all these other roles and responsibilities are ending is I feel like this is just this huge wide open space that I'm looking at for next year. So it'll be interesting to see what our year in review looks like for me a year later. Um, I, I hope you. I hope you're not talking about breakups. Yeah, again that's just. I'll put in a plug yeah. there. <laughs> it does. It does feel a little. Uh, uh, a little. What's What's the right term? Uh, uh, sort of. I don't know. Are you taunting Alexa with your uh, <laughs> new relationship? <laughs> I mean, it's weird for me to be like. I don't even know what to say about that because I feel like it's so hard for me to be cheesy. But I want to be like. Nope. I feel really confident that I won't be talking about breakups in a year. But I feel also stupid saying that. Um, uh, I'm trying to think like what else I mean so actually I joked about like my summer was winter so I was in Australia for a month in our summer which is their winter and that was pretty hard like my partner lives in the suburbs in a place where I can't easily drive a car I'll learn eventually but right now I can't has a very different lifestyle like made different life choices before we met and things like that and so seeing what that's like was somewhat challenging and like part of it is you know he lives in Sydney I'm gonna live in Melbourne so I'm transitioning to like partial shared life partial still independence um, which is part of what is making this move possible for me and less scary like I'm really excited about the job I'm excited about being in the same university as Fiona and also just still having my own life like I'm not completely putting all my eggs and like I'm just doing it for the guy or whatever so that made it easier um i feel very 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 glad that i have a property manager (laughs) 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 i literally considered tweeting on thanksgiving day like how thankful i am for my property manager but then i thought that might 
offend a lot of other people who I should be more thankful for. Um, but she's like helping me get my house ready to like rent out when I leave. Um, it makes the transition easier just to already have had a property manager. I I feel like it's so dumb, but it really like she she makes my life much easier. She's awesome. Um, I discovered Taylor Swift's song "You Need to Calm Down" this year, which was one of the highlights mm-hmm. of my year. Um, Great song, yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, do you know who Lizzo is? I do know who Lizzo is now, and I've watched several of her music videos. Great, I'm so proud of I you. I like them. Um, yeah and um, there was something else I was going to say yeah I think for me it's weird like it's a random time in my career to all of a sudden be faced with all this like freedom and lack of structure but like I'm very like it's yeah cause for self-reflection I guess I like changing things up so that that aspect of it is exciting but it's also a little bit terrifying. Um, yeah, I think that's my year in review. I don't think I have too much else to say. Yeah, I mean, we, we were talking, I mean, in a way I was joking about like you being the opposite of Alexa, but I, I think like in some ways, you know, there is this common theme of academia just being like tough on relationships and and I know you're not moving to Australia just for that but it was it's obviously like part of the picture so in some ways it's like it's nice to celebrate a win (laughs) for like you know academia Mm -hmm. like someone having a a successful relationship (laughs) in academia (laughs) I don't know yeah yeah I mean it is it's it's yeah I kind of want to go back now and listen to our past years in review because I feel like it is really interesting to think of it in the broader context of like life taking funny turns and yeah. That's funny. I uh, I hadn't thought about going back and listening. I wonder if it would be interesting or if it would be like going back and reading my grad school application essay or something yeah. where I would just cringe so the entire I'm curious way what through. I said in 2017 because that fall, so part not just because I had gone through a breakup, but like in addition to that, I also had a shitty quarter like teaching was really really tough and stuff like that but I also have this vivid memory I don't know if it's accurate and I wonder if I talked about it in the year in review of like deciding that I wanted to like become good at being single that like I was gonna do like for me loneliness was this like monster hiding under the bed that I was just always afraid Mm -hmm. would come out and in 2018 I feel like I conquered that maybe I'm deluding myself because I wasn't single all that long but like I enjoyed my year and a half of being single quite a bit um, and so for me, looking back, like what I was really afraid was going to ha- 2018 was going to look like at the end of 2017 didn't look like that way at all. So it's really nice to me. I mean, not that it would have been a fault of mine if it had looked that way, but yeah, it's interesting. Yeah. I know that you talked in 2018 about feeling like you had gotten good at being single. Yeah. I don't remember. I think you did talk about your breakup in 2017, but I can't remember. Yeah. What else? Yeah. Yeah, it's been mm-hmm. it's been a long. We've been doing this podcast for a while now. It's crazy. Yeah, I know. Holy shit! Yeah, that is Almost crazy. Yeah, I know. That's true. We've done three years in review. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Well, yeah, we. Uh, um, yeah, yeah, that is kind of crazy. Um, well, maybe that's a good spot to to yeah, wrap sure. up. Um, crazy how we're doing this uh, so long um so uh, yeah thank you listeners for for listening and for sticking with us through our now our third year in review 
Um, and I hope y'all are having a good end of the year and any holidays you're celebrating. And we will be back with you next time. Thank you.